Gail Houle first noticed something was off with her husband Irving on Holy Thursday in 1993. Irving felt sick, and he went home to lay on the couch after adoration at their parish. And Irving told Gail that his hands hurt. But when Gail looked at his hands, there was nothing there. The next day, Good Friday, Irving felt worse. He stayed home from services, which was unusual for the devout Catholic. The pain continued through Easter Sunday. And then, a purple-red spot started to form on each of his palms. Each spot was about the size of a dime. Irving told his wife that the spots were painful, but he didn't want to talk about them. He looked haggard, and he stood in front of me in my front room and held up his hands, and I said, you, you, look, you look like you've been through the ringer, Irving. And he said, I don't know what's happening to me. This is Terry Saunders. Terry is a deacon in the Diocese of Marquette, Michigan. He and Irving were close friends, and he remembers seeing Irving that Easter Monday or Tuesday. He can't remember which. He held up his hands in front of me, and there was two small purple circles in the middle of the palms of his hands. And uh, I immediately recognized them. Uh, Those are the wounds of Jesus. And uh, that's exactly what I thought, but I... I rested in the spirit. I fell over on the couch. As soon as I saw his hands, I fell down onto the couch. And my only thought was, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. Nothing else, nothing about this is weird or what could this be or how did this man have these marks? Nothing like that. It was immediately I recognized him as the wounds of Christ. Irving was 67 when those purple-red spots first appeared. And he had them until his death in 2009, at the age of 83. And in those nearly two decades, those spots were examined by doctors, priests, bishops, cardinals. No one could say for certain what was happening. This week on CNA Newsroom, you'll hear the story of Irving Houle, a hard-working Catholic veteran in Michigan who could one day be officially recognized as a saint in the Catholic Church. My name is Kate Vike, and I'll be your host this week while JD is out. Stick around. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. I met Irving Houle through some ladies from my parish. This is Terry again. Back in 1992, Terry was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. It was in the end stages. He was dying. These ladies were bringing me Holy Communion and they said that they knew of a holy man that I should meet. And they ended up bringing Irving to my house and introducing us. Terry told me he knew of Irving because Irving's children were all around the same age as Terry. They'd cross paths at sporting events and school functions in the city of Escanaba on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. But I did not know Irving. I, I knew he was the patriarch of that family, but I didn't know him. After that first meeting, Irving began to visit Terry regularly to bring him Holy Communion and to pray with him. 
we got to be pretty good friends and, and he was coming at least on a weekly basis, sometimes two or three times a week. I asked Terry about his impressions of those first visits with Irving. Well, I had never had anyone tell me how much Jesus loved me. I guess, I guess you hear it at church, and if you read the Bible, you'll find it in there that God loves us all. But he, when he told me that Jesus loved me and cared about me, he's the first person that I ever really believed. He's just humble and uh, authentic. His witness uh, was authentic. He cried in my presence because I was dying and he felt so bad for my wife and my three children and that they were losing their husband and father. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I was a police detective and I didn't do much crying for anybody. I didn't cry for myself even for a long time. So uh, it was a very authentic witness to me that someone would care that much about me uh, personally when he hardly you know, barely knew me. He just knew I was in a tough spot and, and he would pray for me constantly. But he did not have the stigmata when I met him. He was uh, just a, uh, what the ladies told me, a holy man. He could be found at church every day after work, saying the Stations of the Cross. He went to daily mass in a little church that's now closed, uh, the St. Patrick's Church. Uh, uh, but uh, but he would be alone in that church and people would come in, just stop by, and he would be there every day uh, praying the Stations of the Cross. Terry and Irving met regularly for several months, and then... It was the spring of 1993, and it was, uh, it was Holy Thursday, and Irving came to my house and uh, brought me Holy Communion, explained to me that he couldn't visit me over the weekend because he would be with his family all weekend, and they'd be going to Mass and having family dinners and visiting with the children and grandchildren, but he would be back after Easter. When he returned to my place on Easter Monday or Easter Tuesday, I'm not sure which day it was, he came in and uh, he looked haggard and he stood in front of me in my front room and held up his hands and I said, you look, you look like you've been through the ringer, Irving, and he said, I don't know what's happening to me, he said, and he held up his hands in front of me, and there was two small purple circles in the middle of the palms of his hands. Before we continue with the episode, I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what happened to Irving that Easter of 1993. Irving appears to have received the stigmata which is a supernatural phenomenon whereby a person bears the physical wounds of Jesus on the cross. Here's CNA's managing editor, Carl Bunderson, to explain it in better detail. Stigmata are one of a number of extraordinary mystical phenomena that can occur in mystics, but are not a normal feature of the mystical state. They have a supernatural cause and can be given for the good of others, or they can witness to the individual's sanctity to edify the church. The stigmata is the spontaneous appearance of wounds resembling those of Christ crucified, usually in the hands, feet, and side. The wounds can be visible or invisible, permanent or periodic, and transitory, simultaneous, or successive. They're usually found in persons of heroic virtue who have a tender love of Christ and his passion, and they're usually imposed in periods of ecstasy or prayer, and they usually appear instantaneously. Stigmata are often preceded by physical and moral suffering because they're a sign of union with the crucified Christ and a participation in his sufferings. 
The best known stigmatic is St. Francis of Assisi, who received them September 17, 1224, which, by the way, is celebrated as a feast in the extraordinary form. That day, he had been in prayer and received a consoling vision of a seraph, who seemed to be crucified. It was after this vision that his stigmata appeared. Padre Pio also had the stigmata, and St. Catherine Ricci and St. Catherine of Siena had visible stigmata, which were later made invisible at their request. Some believe that St. Paul may have been a stigmatic, based on his saying in the Epistle to the Galatians that he bears in his body the marks of Christ. But this is generally held to refer to the marks of the sufferings he had endured for Christ's sake. Just the appearance of visible signs in the body isn't enough for the church to be sure that the stigmata in a given case have a supernatural cause, rather than being just a psychosomatic disorder. Common signs of authentic stigmatics are that they were surprised by their appearance, they sought to conceal it, and they asked that God remove the visible wounds. True stigmata usually bleed on the days or at times when Christ's passion is commemorated. They don't fester and the wounds can't be healed naturally, and the flow of blood is at times so great that it can't be explained naturally. Terry and Irving continued to pray together. But Terry told me that after Easter of 1993, after Irving received the stigmata, Irving began to touch Terry's chest while the two of them would pray. When the month came that I was supposed to die, I went back to the Mayo Clinic and I wasn't dead. And uh, I convinced them to open up my chest and cut out some of the lesions in my lungs. And they did, and when I woke up, the doctor was standing there, and I woke up 24 hours later after surgery in the ICU, and he said, I, I cannot find any cancer in you. I said, well, how do you explain that? He says, I don't know. I can't explain it. Terry was undergoing experimental treatments for his cancer, including bone marrow stimulants and large doses of chemotherapy drugs. Everyone in the study died within 37 months, except for one man who's lived for more than 20 years, and that's me. When Terry told Irving about his healing, He thanked God. He thanked Jesus every day. Every time that I saw him, we thanked Jesus together. After receiving the stigmata, Irving began a healing ministry. He would pray with people, and he would place his hands on people's heads, usually at churches after Mass. And as word spread about Irving, more and more people showed up. And busloads of people would come, but they would come from a couple of hours away, from the Lower Peninsula of Michigan or from the Green Bay, Wisconsin area, and come in and we'd pack the church, and they'd stand in line for five, five hours to get prayed over after Mass. One of those people was John Lalonde. John was diagnosed with an incurable cancer in May of 2004. The next month, John and his wife drove to Door County to break the news to his mother, who was a devout Catholic. The morning after I, after I told my mother and we went to church, and some of the ladies at the church said that my mother wanted to take him to see Francis. A quick note, Irving is sometimes called Francis because of a book about his life that published in 2005. The author referred to him as Francis instead of using his real name in order to protect his identity. Okay, back to John. And my mother said, oh yeah, uh, Francis, uh, that's a good idea. And then, of course, I'm thinking, who's Francis? <laughs> a few days later, John and his mother made the three-hour drive north to Escanaba, where Irving, or Francis, was scheduled to have another healing service at a local Christian bookstore. The 
at the time I was in a lot of pain. I was, I felt like I was sitting on a screwdriver with the point sticking up and it was a three hour ride. So it was extremely uncomfortable. My feeling was more or less, if this will make my mom feel better, I'm for it. You know, I, I never really thought about a miracle. I didn't know anything about him at all. Yeah, uh, we got there and, uh, we walked in. The first thing I noticed, and again, I wasn't expecting anything, but when I walked through the door of that bookstore, uh, it was just an immediate uh, feeling of peace. Have you ever walked into a, a church, let's say late in the evening, it's empty, it's dark, you, have, you might smell the candles and such, but you walk in and it's just so peaceful. That, that's exa- Even though the room was filled with people and they're bustling around here, but that was exactly what I felt. Again, I didn't expect anything. That's exactly the feeling that I had as I walked into that room. And I saw an older gentleman uh, seated up in front of the room. It was Irving. John and his mother got in line. John doesn't remember how long it took them to reach Irving, but when they got up to him, John's mother went first. He asked her what she wanted to pray for, and she says, oh, I have my aches and my pains, but uh, I'm not here for me. Uh, I'd like you to pray for my children, all 13 of them, but especially this son, John, because the doctors have told him he has cancer and that he only has a very short time to live. And he took my mother's hands in his, and when he did that, I could see the wounds in his hands. He had a, like a like a cotton pad in his palm and then he had large bandages over the over the wounds on the top of his hands then he started to pray and he was holding her hands in his i had my hand on my mother's uh, right shoulder as as he was praying for her and uh, i closed my eyes and i just started to repeat nobody told me to do it i just did it i started to repeat the holy name of jesus with the most reverence that i could just jesus Jesus, Jesus, and I felt like a tickle. You know, it was a tickle above my belt buckle, but below my belly button. And that tickle got really, really hot. It got hotter and hotter and hotter. And even though it was extremely hot, it didn't burn. Uh, in fact, it's, it, my body started to feel really good. And um, then the the tickle spread in a in a big circle around my upper torso. It was it felt so good I didn't want it to go away. You know? Irving finished praying with John's mother. Then he prayed with John. All the while, John remembered that warmth and the feeling of peace that he experienced. And I wasn't thinking about really anything, but I thought maybe. As, we, as we're getting ready to leave, everything's winding up. I said, maybe I should tell somebody what happened. So I did. They all just smiled. <laughs> you know, like, this happens all the time. And I remember getting into the car, and as soon as I sat down on that seat, I realized I didn't have any pain. John met Irving in the summer of 2004. That fall, John decided to order a new CAT scan of his chest. We knew from the original CAT scan that the cancer was... Had, had metastasized into all my lymph nodes and bones. In fact, that, that CAT scan, when you, when you looked at my chest, uh, it looked like my whole torso was filled with milk. You couldn't see anything. It just 
was all totally white. After taking the new CAT scan, John met with a new oncologist. He, he started to talk to me about you know, what he was looking at. He said, you're going to have a very gruesome death. Talk about bedside manners. Your death is going to be very gruesome. The best thing you can hope for is renal failure. <laughs> and I'm going, well, wait a minute. I don't, you know. I said, Doc, are you looking at the new CAT scan? And he said, yeah, I've got it right here. I said, I said, the new one? He said, yeah, the one done in June. But June was the original CAT scan. The oncologist left the room to find the new CAT scan. And when he returned... He'd, he'd look at a page, he'd go, remarkable. And then he'd turn the page and he had to go back and forth. Remarkable. Go to the next page. Remarkable. So he, he did this a few times and I finally said, I stopped him. I said, Doc, you want me to tell you what that report says? He looked up. I said, I don't have cancer, do I? And he said, he said, not that we can measure, Mr. Lalonde, you've made a remarkable recovery. We talked for about an hour in his office on his nickel about God. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Kevin Jones. I'm a longtime journalist with Catholic News Agency. I want to thank you for listening to CNA Newsroom. We bring you the voices behind the headlines. We explore our world together with an eye towards our faith. If you enjoy CNA Newsroom as much as I do, be sure and subscribe to the show. You'll never miss an episode. Subscribing is easy and free on any podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Just open your phone's podcast app, then search for CNA Newsroom. Click the subscribe button. That way, you'll get our episodes as soon as we post them. Happy listening, and make sure you check out episode 22, featuring yours truly, Kevin Jones. Now, back to the show. John and Irving became friends. And soon, John started bringing pilgrims up to Escanaba to pray with Irving. I started taking up uh, all kinds of pilgrims. I would take up I would take up carloads of pilgrims. There was probably a dozen of us that were very close to him, that, uh, that were led to him, uh, I think, by the Blessed Mother and the Holy Spirit, and that he accepted us because she told him there would be people brought to him. And uh, we would just... We would all go to confession, and then we'd get with him and go to Mass, and then we'd pray over hundreds of people uh, that God's will would be done in their lives. And they needed, if he would be so kind, that they needed healing, he would give it to them. And just, uh, it, it was a crazy experience. Uh, uh, if one of us was a journalist and knew better, we would have been writing everything down. Both Terry and John told me they saw countless healings in those years of Irving's healing ministry. Irving himself didn't seem to be phased as much by the physical miracles as as he was by the spiritual miracles. Irv was more excited if somebody would come back to church than he would be moved when people's cancer would disappear or they would their lameness would go away or or they would be able to see again or hear better or whatever malaise they were suffering. He was moved more when someone would say. I just went to confession. I haven't been there in 40 years. Or I'm coming back to church. I just came back to church, and I'm going to continue the rest mm -hmm. of my life. 
you know, a mother would bring her son to be prayed over because the son had a, a cancerous tumor. The tumor would disappear on the way home, on the drive home, and uh, uh, and then the mother, who had been neglecting her faith, becomes a faithful Catholic for the last 20 years or so. John remembered one pilgrim in particular, a man named Dave. Dave had hemophilia, which is a rare disorder in which blood doesn't clot like normal. Dave wasn't Catholic, but he had heard about Irving, and he decided to give it a shot. He drove up to Escanaba with John and some others to meet with Irving in the basement of a local church. And after Irving had prayed with Dave, Dave disappeared, and John went looking for him. And he was sitting in about the third or fourth pew in the middle of the church, the third or fourth pew from the front, all by himself. I said, I said, what's going on? John, he said, when I was a child, I was abused by my father. I said, my whole life, I've hated him because of that abuse, and I could never forgive him. When that man prayed for me, I did. I was able to forgive my dad. Even now, thinking of it, I'm I'm getting weepy. (laughs) But it was such a special, such a special moment when that man touched me and prayed for me. I was able to let it go. Dave didn't, Dave didn't live that much longer, um, but he was at peace with his dad. And through Francis, God gave Dave that gift of peace, and uh, it was wonderful. And Irving was humble. He would always say, I don't heal anyone. He said, Jesus heals. I don't heal anyone. Jesus heals. And then he would ask people, what is it that you need? And they would tell him and he'd say, well, let's just ask Jesus. Hold their hands while he would pray for them. And then he would usually end up putting his hands on their shoulder. And then he would cup their face in his hands with those wounds, which which grew enormously. They He wore bandages on the back of his hands all the time because the wounds went all the way through his hands. They were probably the size of a 50 cent piece in his palm, at least the scabbing and from the scabbing and the bleeding. Archbishop Alexander Sample leads the Diocese of Portland, Oregon today. But back in the early 90s, he was pastor of several parishes near where Irving lived. And he heard about Irving. I, quite honestly, at the time, didn't make a whole lot of it, uh, to be very honest. I, I tend to be very skeptical about such things. He left the area before ever meeting Irving. But 12 years later, in 2005, Archbishop Sample was appointed to lead the Diocese of Marquette. The diocese includes Escanaba, where Irving lived and served. And my predecessor, Bishop Garland in, in Marquette, you know, had given his blessing to this. And he told me that he found Irving to be a very humble and, and very prayerful man. Archbishop Sample remembers visiting Escanaba to celebrate Mass sometime early in his ministry as bishop. And after the Mass, I was in the sacristy, just, you know, taking my vestments off and Everyone else had left, and it was just me alone in the sacristy. This, this man approached me, and I had never met Irving. I had never met him. I had never seen a picture of him. I had no idea uh, anything about him other than what I had been hearing. He comes, he approaches me, and he just very gently he starts talking to me and having a conversation with me. And I don't honestly, truly remember what we were talking about. But 
I distinctly remember, as we were standing there talking to each other, the scent of roses. But then as we continued to talk, I glanced down at his hands, and I noticed the bandages on his hands, and then it suddenly clicked. He wasn't flashy, he wasn't drawing attention to himself, he didn't introduce himself to me, you know, I'm I'm Irving Hool, I'm the, the stigmatist, you know, and that was my first encounter with Irving. A little while later, Irving came to meet Archbishop Sample in his office in Marquette. Irving wanted to ask for his blessing for the work that he was doing. And this is what I, I really admired about Irving. Even though he had the blessing of my predecessor, Bishop Garland, I was the new bishop, and he wanted to make sure that what he was doing was all right with me. He, he you know, emphasized, I don't preach, you know, I'm not there to draw attention to myself. Um, I'm just there to pray with people, and if Jesus wants to use me as his instrument, uh, I will allow myself to be used as his instrument. He wanted to be humble and obedient, and I, I had every sense that if I had said to him, Irving, I want you to discontinue what you're doing, he would have been very at peace uh, in, in following that directive. Of course, Archbishop Sample gave Irving his blessing to continue his work, and Irving did for almost two decades praying with an estimated 200,000 people. During that time, Irving also began to suffer the passion every night, with pain beginning just after midnight, and visions until 2.30 or 3 in the morning. He told his spiritual advisor, Father Robert Fox, that he would feel intense pain, as if he were being torn apart. He said God would show him who and what he was suffering for. Civil wars, abortion, Homelessness, murder, domestic abuse. Irving died in January of 2009 at the age of 83. I often think about the time with Francis, maybe five to seven years, and it was almost like a magical time, you know, where where God was God was there. I mean, it's like a first Holy Communion. You know, you're, it's such a special time that God's there. I mean, in my childhood, it was the happiest day of my childhood. And you remember stuff like that. We need more saints, more people like Irvin that pray every day and that love people unconditionally and that pray with them and that uh, are concerned about their souls and their bodies. Last November, nearly a decade after Irving's death, the Bishop of Marquette opened Irving's cause for sainthood. U.S. bishops voted on the cause at their meeting earlier this month in Baltimore. At the request of Bishop John Dorfler, Bishop of Marquette, does the body of bishops consider it advisable to continue to advance on the local level the cause for canonization of the servant of God, Irving Francis E. Hull, in accord with the applicable provisions of the universal law? All those in favor indicate by saying aye. Aye. Those opposed, nay. The ayes have it, motion passes unanimously. Uh, Thank you, Bishop. Thank you very much. Irving's case moved forward to the Vatican, where the Congregation for the Causes of Saints will determine if he led a life of heroic virtue. If the Congregation approves, and the Pope, Irving will be named Venerable. Then he will need sufficient proof of two miracles before he can be beatified and then canonized. If that circumstance of officially recognizing Francis as a saint 
will help other people get to heaven, then I think he's going to be all for it. <laughs> and 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 because that was that was his whole nature. He didn't care about any of the any of the razzmatazz or any of the, any of the, you know any of that stuff. He only cared about people getting to heaven. The call to holiness, the call to sainthood, is for everyone, even for the average ordinary person, man or woman. God can can take us. And, and lead us to great heights of, of sanctity, if we'll let him. You know, we're not all going to receive the stigmata, but nevertheless, his, his holiness of life is what should stand out. I think God probably gave Irving the stigmata so that people would notice him. I, I don't think any of us would know Irving Hull if, he didn't, if God didn't mark him. So I think he would have lived his life out as a good, humble servant of God, and no one but his close friends would know what a really holy person he was. Today, Terry leads a foundation in Irving's name to promote Irving's cause for sainthood. And over the last five or six months, I've been contacted by people from Hawaii and Alaska, Arkansas and Arizona and New Hampshire. Wisconsin and Michigan and Lower Michigan, people from all over. So I'm I'm hoping that God will use this this man's life to to fix our to fix our country and bring people closer to Him. That's what I'm praying for. So Irv would like that. He wouldn't want to be called a saint unless God commanded it. <laughs> Terry's association worked with the Bishop of Marquette to develop an official prayer for Irving's intercession and for his cause. The association is still in its very early stages. It doesn't even have a website yet. But if you're interested in learning more or getting involved, check out the show notes for this week's episode. You've been listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host this week, Kate Bike. J.D. will be back next week. Don't worry. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. We're produced and edited by Kate Bike and Jonah McKeown. Special thanks this week to everyone who shared their stories about Irving with us. See you next week.